Hi everyone, my name is Montserrat and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Shannon Ellis. Shannon currently serves as the Vice President for Student Services at the University of Nevada, Reno. Prior to her current role, Shannon served in various capacities at Evergreen State College, the University of Southern California, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Ellis has received two Fulbright Awards in her career for studies in Germany and in Japan. She has also served as President of NASPA. Her ongoing research focuses on organizational transformation and the role of student services in tomorrow's college and university. Uh, Dr. Ellis received her PhD from the University of Southern California in higher education and law, her master's degree at the University of Massachusetts in public administration, and her BS from the University of Illinois in journalism. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you, Miles. I feel welcomed. Oh, well, good, good. I'm glad I'm glad you feel welcome. So uh, let's get rolling. Um, I'll just start with some uh, questions here to just help uh, folks understand you a little better. So uh, I, I, we'll just get started here. What role does running play in your life? Running has been an integral part of my life for more than 40 years. And when I was in my 20s, I was working Greek affairs, and anybody who works with fraternities and sororities or has knows that can be a, quite a demanding job. And my doctor said to me, you're too young to be this stressed out, so you need to start running. And uh, I did. I ran around the block and thought I was going to die. Mm-hmm. And, but I went out and ran around the block again the next day, and then I ran around the block two times. And it started to make me clear my head. And since then, I every day, I get up very early in the morning, and I go for an 11-mile run. Uh, it used to be longer, but the job demands just uh, got in the way. But It's my time to. It's my time, which is the most important thing. It's nobody wants to bother me at four o'clock in the morning, so I never worry about that. And I think about everything and nothing, and solve the problems of the world. Think about what's ahead for the day. Uh, Start to get hungry. Think about what I'm going to eat when I get back home. Mm -hmm. And um, it it just really is. it, It 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 is as normal to me as breathing and eating. So it's very important. Do you listen to anything while you run? Do you listen to music no, or podcasts? I, I, no, I, I do not, and, I, and that's intentional because then I'm, um, then I'm not doing the head work. And I'm not thinking about, wow, that hill I just went up uh, and how I did it. Everything to me is a lesson, you know, and... Um, I did it with long strides yesterday and today. I couldn't do that, but I'm doing short strides, but I got up the hill eventually. So I'm thinking about all those other, because the rest of the day is full of an incredible amount of noise. doesn't mean it's not important noise, but so, no, I don't. Hmm. Okay, I think this is, an, I, I'm also a runner, and I think this is an important mm-hmm. question. Do you run the same 11-mile loop every day, or do you run uh, different 11-mile loops? Uh, I usually run the same loop, yeah. Mm. And you, I'll tell you when I vary it is on the weekends because mm. okay. I have more time uh, to, and, and, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, just go, just run. But um, on the weekends I tend to go to different places. And I love it. Like NASPA conferences, I love because part of exploring the city, especially like you, you're involved in NASPA. You don't get out much. You're at so many meetings and workshops. The early morning go for a run in any place we are is my chance to really feel the city and get to know where I am and, and if I have any free time, where I want to go back to. So I love running as a part of uh, when I travel. Mm-hmm. I also run the same uh, run basically the yeah. same loop all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, right. you find it a good way to gauge too how you're doing? Like, oh, I'm having a slow day today, or oh, I'm doing it faster. I do, and I think that I think the consistency of it uh, for me running the running the same route all the time makes me feel uh, like I'm not focusing actually on the the running, and I'm not mm-hmm. actually focusing on like whether I can or cannot do it. 
mm-hmm. um, I just I like know it, like the confidence makes it where my like my mind can really like drift away and get that and get that time away that you're talking about. Good. Yeah, good. I, I agree. And I get that it's different for everybody, but I, I, I agree with you. It does the same thing for me. Yeah. Okay, so I know you like to start your day by reading and consume a lot of mm-hmm. information outside of higher education. What are some unexpected sources sources of inspiration in your regular reading rotation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, before I go for the run, I do read a lot, and I'm drinking coffee to wake up to go for the run. I... Um, Somebody a long time ago really encouraged me to read outside the field and make friends outside the field. So I read a lot of um, biographies of people not anywhere related to the field. I I will read anybody's biography. I I find other people fascinating. So somebody named Jerry Markbright, who was an NFL referee, wrote a uh, biography. I, I'm not a football fan, but I found that book very instructive in leadership and teamwork. I read Harvard Business Review. I read Fast Company magazine, uh, the New York Times. MIT has a great innovation magazine that I read quite often. And I, I read poetry. Um, I, I, I find poetry can be very powerful and uh, it's usually not lengthy and so um, I, I would never be able at this point I'm not willing to try and write poetry but I find uh, those kinds of things are the things I read. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, normally do not read biographies, but I am reading one right now that's uh, that's that's pretty interesting. So, uh, are you willing to share it? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think people are are, are probably aware of it. So, uh, and you maybe know of this person already. Uh, so, Ron Chernow, who wrote the mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the Alexander Hamilton biography that inspired mm-hmm. Hamilton the musical, uh, mm-hmm. recently released a biography of Ulysses S. Grant that I've been reading and is really yes. really interesting. Oh yeah, I have seen him, the author, interviewed. Yeah, it looks fascinating. Yeah, yeah, good. It's I'm just adding it to my list here. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's good. I mean, it's it's very lengthy. Uh, Ron Chernow does not do. Uh, does not do short books into people's lives, but mm-hmm. well, th- these are fascinating people. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. There's a lot to a lot to do there. I'm really interested in how he, in particular. I know this isn't what we're here to talk about, but I am really interested in how he, in particular, picks his subjects. Um, mm-hmm. because he seems to uh, Hamilton and Grant have these like have these really interesting through lines of being like sort of a like one of the most influential and mm-hmm. uh, one of the most influential influential people of their era and incredibly mm-hmm. important in their time, but for some reason have kind of gotten lost in the shuffle um, of mm-hmm. of history. You know, there's probably I don't know one word about Ulysses S. Grant for every 150 words about Abraham Lincoln or something. You know, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. just inter- just interesting that he. No, would, I I think yeah, find, looking for those people that because. Somebody said, well, you know, we're going to move you over to the side and put the spotlight on you. You know, I mean, that's part of the dissonance about what we were taught and why were we taught that. The conquerors get to decide who, who, what we learn and how we learn it. I, the longer I live, I think of Grant and, other, and, and Hamilton, a life, you know, doesn't have to be widely acclaimed. Um, to be celebrated. You know, I often find those um, who are least renowned um, have impacted society the most. So yeah, find how how Chernow finds those those subjects. Absolutely. Well isn't that what we do in student affairs? We're finding the student that isn't the bright light, but we're trying to pull them out and give them confidence. There's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so I would love to hear a little more about your Fulbright experience. Um, did you teach mm-hmm. or conduct research, and, and what did you take away from living abroad? Thank you for asking me about this, because uh, this is so important. If 
people listening to the podcast don't take away anything other than this, I'll be thrilled. Um, Fulbright, uh, which started right after World War II as a way to mend relations uh, around the globe, um, funded by the federal government, still funded, uh, and foreign governments, they created an administrator's Fulbright. And mm-hmm. this is what I, I am constantly encouraging student affairs professionals to apply for an administrative Fulbright because it, I did them um, a while back, but um, one was for an entire summer, one was for six weeks, the end of spring semester. So they they're tailored to people who do what we do if you want to go on what they call an administrator's Fulbright. So you're not taking a full year to be away from your job or your family or other commitments. Um, and, and it really is about going to another country and immersing yourself in their higher education system and their culture because of its influence on the, the system. So Germany gave me an opportunity to um, study one of my favorite topics, which is change and transformation, uh, why it happens and how people deal with it and react to it. Because I had been to Germany several times when it was um, divided, East and West Germany, and I had been to Berlin several times when it was divided. And my Fulbright uh, got me there right after the wall had come down. And so it was fascinating to um, meet with students and faculty and staff all over Germany and discuss how their lives were being impacted by the reunification. And you know, we get fed a lot of stuff that we believe, and, and people are like, oh, the Germans are all so happy. Well, no, people weren't necessarily so happy about this because of the economic drain. And I mean, the, the stories were endless when the, the Stasi, who were the secret police, um, colleagues in Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern uh, German institutions had ratted on their fellow student affairs, fellow faculty for subversive activity. And now all of a sudden, they're all working together still and people were, I mean, think about that. You think about it. You have conflict in the workplace occasionally. Here's the guy that sent you to prison. Now you're freed from prison, but he or she is still working in the next office. So it was, it, it was full of life lessons about transformation and change and how you deal with what's foisted upon you and, and uh, the downside as well as the positives. Uh, Japan, we have a lot of students from Japan at the University of Nevada, Reno, and I really needed to understand them. And the Fulbright gave me the opportunity to travel the entire country and study what we would call a K-12 system. And the culture is so different from ours, even with the influence of, of um, the United States around the world. So it was very helpful. I learned a lot about why our students from Japan are the way they are and the struggles some of them have when they go back to Japan because mm-hmm. they're not as Japanese anymore. Mm-hmm. And that is a struggle in their family and in the workplace. Less so, but at the time it was more so. So my big plug is everybody should go on the Fulbright website and just it, it just plug plug in um, administrative seminars, and you will see France, Germany, Japan, Korea, India, Taiwan, Russia, uh, and and you should apply for them. It doesn't matter what you do in student affairs. So that's my big plug. Go mm. do this, and I think you you can do two in your career span. So, mm. so okay. you know, you pick one and then you can do another one later on. Um, but it, it's just, it's great. It's the closest thing to a sabbatical people in student affairs will get to do. Mm. Okay. So I hope that answered your question. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What a what a great resource for people to know about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's great. It's underutilized, so yeah, a good yeah, chance. yeah. Mm-hmm. I never even heard of it. I just assumed you were you were mm-hmm. doing one of these other things. So that's neat. Right, right, right. Um, so in our preparation for this podcast, you mentioned something that's really uh, you mentioned something that's really stuck with me. You said you're passionate about helping colleagues and students surprise themselves about what they can become. Um, I, I think that that's really lovely, and I think it's a really humanizing mm-hmm. idea. And I wondered if you'd be willing to expound on that idea a little bit. Yeah. Um, I often say to students, but staff as well, um, I want you to surprise your mother. And why I say that is because I don't care if you're um, a seasoned student affairs professional or mid-level or, or if you're a freshman or a senior in, in college, I want people to keep pushing themselves to surprise their mother because mothers will, they love you to death, but they'll say, I'll say, wow, you know, Bob was so fantastic in that talent night we had, and he, he did such a great job. He's so outgoing. And, so, and, and mothers look at me like, Bob, in a talent show? Bob would never get up on a stage. Bob would never sing. Bob would never. And you say, well, he did, and here's the video of him doing it. And mothers are surprised and shocked. Um, So that's what we're going for. Because I think we all come out of a place, whether it's our initial family or the one we create or even the workplace, where we can get pigeonholed and we're willing to accept that. Mm-hmm. And by surprising our mother we, and, and having the encouragement of others, we can create who we truly, really are without people saying, oh, you're no good at that or your brother's better at that than you are, so you shouldn't mm-hmm. try it. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm really encouraging people to do. I think a lot of us just need a nudge. And sometimes we need two nudges. But beyond that, I think there's this, there's this other life inside everybody that we'd like to try. And so I want to encourage people to find that and go ahead and try it. I mean, higher ed is a great place to do it, especially if you're a student, but even as part of your career. And so I'm trying to nudge, I'm trying to encourage, I'm trying to challenge. Um, when people come to me and say, well, I'd like to work on this behind the scenes, you know, it's my job to say, but you should be not behind the scenes, you should be in front of the curtain. Let's talk about that. And what scares you about that? And what would be so horrible about that? Mm-hmm. So, yes, that, that, is, that is, and I don't just do it at work, I do it with everybody. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, there's all these studies about how people are, are really dramatically impacted by sort of the impressions and the expectations that people have of them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a interesting, interesting idea of like really interesting. Then we internalize them, that. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We oh well, people don't expect me to do that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, and and the studies are all valid, and and I want, I just want people to get the encouragement and the confidence that comes with that. Yeah. All right. So our uh, last question in this section um, we asked to all of our guests. Uh, so, Shannon, what is the best book about leadership? Oh, I love Steve Sample, who was the president of University of Southern California for a long time. I love his book, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. He uh, he wrote it. Uh, Warren Bennis, who everybody knows about, um, w- was teaching and researching at USC. So he encouraged Dr. Sample to write this book, and it still it still holds up. So it's and, and I like everything in it. Everything in it I use on a daily basis. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is a new one. That's a new one for us. Good. Good. All right. 
So uh, I was hoping you could uh, you could open up the uh, the gripes tab for us here, and uh, <laughs> Shannon, can you tell us about your relationship with whining? Yeah, thanks for asking me about gripes. And I, at the risk of sounding like I'm whining about whining, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I just have no tolerance for it. Um, I, I and and when I really feel like. So a staff person or a friend or a student has to whine, I set a time limit for them. Um, because all of us, whether you're a professional or a student, we are educated. And um, because we're educated or getting an educated, we are privileged. And there is nobody out in the world in a better position to live the life we want to live, to make it a better world, to give back to others, to create knowledge and art, uh, you should not be whining. You should not be whining. There are so many people who don't have what we have. The mere fact that we're on a campus where people are smart and controversial and engaged and creative, how lucky for us. And, um, there's just no reason to whine. And, and whining gets you nowhere. Uh, it's not productive. Um, and, and again, eh, you get a couple minutes and then you've got to stop. Because really it's about, so what are you going to do? I mean, whining doesn't get you anywhere. What, do you, what are going to be your next steps? And I'm, no, I'm not perfect on this, but when I, when I find myself starting to do it, I stop. I stop. I stop. There, there is so much. Um, there is so much we should be appreciative of, and none of us, truly, none of us. And and um, so, yep, you don't. It, you're not allowed to do it. And and people know that. And it's very victimy. And we have everything. There's no reason we should be victims, and we shouldn't let our students be victims either. So thank you okay. for asking me about whining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for our next uh, segment, we are going to uh, dip in here to higher ed, higher ed two truths and a lie. So, Jane, okay. I'm going to provide you with two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie, and you're going to have to parse okay. out the lie. The theme this time okay. is marvels, not marvel like the comics, marvels like uh, amazing things happening. Okay, um, great. Are you ready for your three options? All right. Okay, so your first option is the New York University recently opened the tallest residence hall in the world. Coral Tower stands 43 stories tall and has a dining hall on the bottom four floors. In order to access the residential portion, students tap into an escalator that transports them above the dining section. So, that is, so that's one option. The next okay. option is that the National Uni University of Singapore invested heavily in dining facilities over the past several years. There are several significant spaces on campus, including three 850-plus seat canteens. On average, the National University of Singapore dining serves fi uh, 50,000 meals a day or a meal every 1.4 seconds. So that's an option as well. And then the okay. last option is at Notre Dame de Nemours University in California, a robot recently completed a philosophy of love course. The robot, Bina48, has been a guest lecturer for several years prior to enrolling in fall 20, 2017 after expressing interest in taking a class in spring 2017. <laughs> so, so your three options are tallest residence hall in the world at NYU, uh, one point, uh, a meal every 1.4 seconds at the National University of Singapore, or uh, a robot, Bina48, uh, completing the philosophy of love course at Notre I, Dame. I want that one to be true. I mm -hmm. want that one to be true. So let me say the NYU one is false. Mm. All right. Well, you are correct. That is right. The oh. NYU one is false. I tried to go. I've been, I've you been not doing You did good. I don't you know. You did good. I've been doing not as great recently. A couple of times it's because I thought they were just too funny, and so I had to include the really, I had to include like a really, a really funny no. idea that I had. It, this one I thought was very boring. I thought it was going to work. NYU was believable, but um, Singapore, you know, 
they're doing phenomenal things. And so I was like, oh yeah, Singapore. I mean, it's it's, it's everything is believable what what they're doing. And and um, so yeah. And then I just wanted the other one to be true, or I would have picked that one. Do you want to do it over again, and I can pick the the wrong one? Would that make no, you feel better? No, no, that's okay. Maybe I was whining about. Uh, maybe I was. No, whining you weren't about whining. No, you weren't <laughs> whining. These are hard to do. These are, yeah. These are hard to do. Well, yeah. I want you to know, I've been really doing a really important job of extra reading, so that maybe I would say, "Oh yeah, I read that. Oh yeah, I read. I haven't read it about any of those three. <laughs> so oh, good for yeah. you. Good yep. for you. Good for you. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that I was able to uh I'm glad that I was able to to you know, come up with something that was at least challenging and that you had to guess at, so that's good. Yeah. You did. I did have to guess and I thought, Oh gosh, I need to be paying more attention to residence hall and dining stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Given yeah. your question. Mhm. Um, okay, so um, I thought maybe we could start our discussion uh, with your positional role as a leader on campus. So you're an executive. You've got a lot of people who work for you and depend on you in a way. And so how do you personally conceptualize that leadership responsibility? Well, I somebody along the way made it clear to me, and I do believe them, that the people in under your responsibility are the most important thing that you have to invest your time and your resources into. Um, it sounds trivial, but some days that's hard to do, especially with what we do in student affairs, because, well, We've got students too. They're the most important thing. We wouldn't be doing the work we're doing. But if I'm not investing in the professional development of or giving the right feedback to to help people be better or the right resources to achieve what they need to achieve, you know, I'm not going to be able to help students. So being constantly mindful that your staff are the, the that's everything, and um, even when you may not, I don't mind that we disagree on things. That's very healthy, um, and and uh, you have to at some point be self motivated. I, I I can't motivate you on a daily basis, but creating the climate where people are a good match for the kind of dedication people in our field have. So that that becomes that becomes a large portion of my thinking and where we spend our time, not just time but money, and are we all aligning with helping people feel like they can be successful this let me give you the flip side of that um, because in two thousand and eight, when everybody was going through a recession and we had to cut the budget, I had to uh, let 26 people go, mm. and it was a, it's what I'm paid to do, so I will not whine about it, <laughs> but I will tell you it was an experience I had never had in my career, and um, I think it was handled as best as we could handle it. I, I met with everybody individually. They did not know it was coming. I met with the division at the end of the day to tell them what had happened if they hadn't already heard. And the lesson that I want to share, which is what this is all leading up to, is as much as I love my staff and I hope staff love being here and working with the students and being at this university, this is true everywhere. It's just an organization and it will drop you like a hot potato when it has to. Mm. And that is cold, but I share that with people ever since that experience because I was letting people go who truly had devoted their entire life to the institution. They had bypassed family reunions, births of children, um, given everything. And you'd be bitter too. You'd be bitter too. And you would be saying, but I've given this place everything. 
But in the end, we were handed, you have to find a million dollars um, and in the division, and what are we? We are people. I mean, we don't have a million dollars in anything except people. And so I really try to share that, especially with younger professionals, because in the end, we're an institution like every place else. And we might work to try and keep, I mean, I had 35 people I was prepared to fire. I was able to find jobs for all of them. Uh, but, and that's about taking care of your people. Uh, we got everybody into a job elsewhere. But um, it, it, I just use it as an illustration and a, and a warning, and I, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Let me say one other thing about the importance of uh, working with your people and being, being aware of your leadership responsibility. I really, really believe that you need to fall in love with your staff. And I learned that from people in the military. And I don't have any military background. I have nothing in my upbringing. But again, spending time with people outside the field, when they're commanding, when they're cultivating 18, 19, 20-year-olds, when they're leading men and women, whether they're in battle or not, they're like, you really have to love these people, and they have to love each other, and cultivating that climate becomes critical because then you will understand the fragility of your leadership and the decisions you make. It also makes my job much more joyful. I truly am in love with my staff. I care about them. I care about everything going on with them. And uh, being in love with somebody you know, you would do anything for them. And that also means telling them the truth that other people won't tell them. So I don't want to make this all sound like it's a love fest. So I wanted to share those pieces of things that have just come to me over the years with anyone listening. Hmm. Yeah, so I wonder, something that I've thought about uh, for, a, for a while to sort of flip that question around. My, mm-hmm. uh, I was at the Mid-Managers Institute a couple of years ago that, that NASA mm-hmm. Region 2 had put on, and, and my, uh, my friend and my faculty member there, Mike Krasakis, who's at uh, the, University of, yeah. uh, the University of Albany, said something really interesting. Uh, he said, everybody always, I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he said, mm-hmm. everybody always wants to look up in an organization for a decision, and people have to realize that not all, like, everybody has to bear some of the decision-making responsibility across the whole organization. It's not mm-hmm. all going to come from, it's not all going to come from me. And so I wonder, you know, in the context of that statement and just sort of your thoughts on that, but also, you know, what sort of leadership do you hope to see from the other members of the student services team at the University mm-hmm. of at the University of Nevada? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I expect them I, – I, it makes me joyful when people make decisions and move forward and um, don't ask permission or don't – I mean, I'm constantly saying, don't sit there and think, well, that's not me. She's not talking about me. She's talking about somebody else. I am talking about you. I just left a meeting where I uh, – the data people were going through data and asking our staff about, well, do you deal with high-risk students or do you go to the low-risk students? And the staff were very timid. And I'm like, you know the answers. This is what you do every day. Don't, don't listen to what the data people are leading you to. You tell them what you experience in the field. So, so people other than Shannon, often more than Shannon, know more. Uh, about making informed decisions. I want people to step up and step out, and you will make the wrong decision, and we all do that. And as long as nobody's dead, we will recover from it. But to make no decision at all is worse. So I expect people not to leave a leadership vacuum, and I expect student affairs people in particular to step into leadership vacuums. I do it every day because people in other parts of the institution do not know how to lead yet, and sometimes they never do. But it's too important to the work of our students and the success of our students to let something go unaddressed in Title IX, in academics, in facilities, in police, 
And so I have never had anybody come in and say to me, hey, what are you doing messing around with police and student relations? Or, hey, wh wh why are you influencing the curriculum so it's got more diversity in the curriculum? I've never had anybody tell me I shouldn't be doing things. People have left a void. So I really encourage staff to step into the void. Do not, do not get all hung up on, well, that's not my area. It's all our area because it involves students. So what are you thinking right now, Miles? Please feel free to argue with me about this. No, no, I think that that's right. I think that we sort of hunker down. I think of us as sort of like turtles in our shell sometimes where we just sort mm -hmm. of like, oh, that's not, I don't know, people talk about sort of, people talk in, in higher education about chain of command like it's, like it's you know, the police force or something. You yeah. Know? And it's just not, I don't know, you know, and, and I think that that, I think that that sort of mindset can really stifle innovation and make, and make things pretty stale. <laughs> And I think it can also, um, I think it can also make people really susceptible to, like, an organization really susceptible to disruption, um, ah. because you know when people are sitting there saying like, oh, this is my job, then there are going to be things that are going to, you know, balls that are going to drop because people are so like, oh, that's not my job description, that's not my role, mm -hmm. um, and so. Uh, you know, we were doing this event on campus recently that was being sort of it was new and it was kind of a it was kind of a rush and and uh, and two uh, my two of my colleagues and I were planning it all together and there wasn't like a really clear delineation of responsibility and ultimately I was just like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm fairly new here and I really care about the success of this event and I care about our office, you know, uh, you know, being reflected in a positive light and I really want to give these students a positive experience so I'm gonna mm -hmm. you know step up and do a couple of extra things and make sure that things run smoothly and. Um, you know, and it ended up being a really, a really positive event. And it was just one of those times where I was like, well, you know, I just, I think, you know, other folks have, you know, other things on their radar. So let me just keep pushing this forward um, yeah. to make sure that we, you know, collectively are going to be successful in this. And nobody told you not to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they were grateful or they didn't even notice and it wasn't a big deal. I mean, I'd rather people come in and say, she's doing stuff I should do. They never do, by the way. I mean, it's always they're not doing something. That's, that's mm -hmm. what I hear more often. Yeah, we, does it impact students? I mean, everything we do at a university, then it's your business. And, and, and I just that's how I want people to act. It, it, it's all, it, it is all about the students. And so how does... How does this impact students? How does this help students graduate? I mean, it's very clear. It's very simple, mm -hmm. and, and it's not. But um, constantly when I'm hearing something from research or another part of the university, okay, ha tell me how this impacts students. Why would this be good for students? Because I pretend like I am going to have to explain this to students. And so I'll say, yeah, that's not good enough. No, that's not, you know. I expect people to ask those questions and not shy away from it. Good. The only time where you I've might make heard... a great team. <laughs> <laughs> the only time where I've ever heard people, I have, I will say that I have heard folks say that that's not our job or that's not our responsibility, mm -hmm. that's somebody else's role. I've heard folks in authority mm -hmm. say that. And the only situations, it's not like this event that, that we were doing on campus last week mm -hmm. here at Clemson. It's not like this, you know, non-controversial event. But if you get into sort of politicized issues, say Title yeah. IX or say, you know, yeah. issues of equity, um, then you may hear some of that. You know, you may hear, and that could be a value thing, that could be a, this, you know, this could push. You know, you mentioned the, the you know, more diversity in the curriculum question. You know, like that's mm -hmm. something that I could see people being like, hey, hey, why, why is that your job? We've got a unit devoted you know, to that, that directs, you know, that reports directly to the president, and it doesn't And I would in. say, I love that. That's a great idea. I would say, are they doing what students need to be done? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, I'm not looking for more work. But if they're not doing it, my job is to advocate for and help keep that at the forefront. Title sure. IX, I don't want to do Title IX, but is Title IX meeting the needs of students? Uh, you know, if they're not, that is my job. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm yeah. Yeah. You, you you raise a good point. Yeah. 
Um, so on a, a sort of related note, I've been thinking recently about the limitations of communication as an executive, and there's only so much you can de- definitively communicate to your team. And I think this is just due to volume, but I think, you know, you, you know that a lot of what you say is going to get lost in the shuffle just, you know, as it's pulling, you know, sort of drifting down in an organization, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and so how do you decide what to emphasize with your team? And I guess that question could be rephrased as, if you know that there's a finite amount that can be communicated and internalized, how do you mm-hmm. choose? How would you, you know, if folks yeah. in the University of Nevada, Reno, if I was just to ask somebody in student services there, you know, what is Shannon Ellis about? What does she say that we care about as a, you know, what does she say that we care about as a division? What would, you know, what would they say and, wish, and, and how did I you whittle you down to that message? <laughs> I wish you would come and ask them that because I would like to know if they understand. I think that's where um, it is it is critical that on a regular basis I, I am clear about what we do value the most. And so when people are writing mission statements for their division and everybody's participating in that, that's very important. You shouldn't just sit at your desk and write it. It just has to be very clear. And so uh, I think you would find people understand that uh, our division exists to um, we recruit we retain and we graduate students, period. It, it's not full of fluffy, fluffy language. And um, I think people would say she is committed to creating a diverse, inclusive, equitable climate for students and the staff who serve them to thrive in. I think that would be very clear. And they know this, not just from documents, but when we start a meeting, we focus in on remember why we do what we do. And keeping it simple, those are big statements, recruiting, retaining, and graduating students, creating an um, inclusive community as we are increasingly diverse. Um, so these are big goals, but uh, I, I think you would find people understand that. The challenge for me as a leader is We'll get on the same page, but as we have turnover, I do find occasionally people didn't get the message. Somebody didn't tell a new director or a new director's staff. And so I really rely on the associate vice presidents and the directors um, to make sure they're clear and that they're conveying that especially to, to new professionals. We do meet with new prof- I do meet with new professionals every year and try and convey these things. I think, I think you, you, you find that you cannot have endless documents. I used to do that with endless goals. It, 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 just, it, it just doesn't do any good. So really, what's the most important thing? And you know, when you're talking about recruitment, retention, and graduation, everything, everything falls under that as far as I'm concerned. So if we have to deal with hate on campus, it falls under that because a climate where there's hate isn't going to retain, recruit or retain or graduate students. If you want to talk about residence halls and how they're constructed and what their programming is, it falls under that statement because we know students who live in halls retain and graduate at a much higher rate. So I can, I can build everything around why we do what we do. So <laughs> I keep it simple, and I, I, hope, uh, I hope people have the messages because I think they're the most important things. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you feel like it's clear on your own campus? What are the priorities? You don't have to look at a piece of paper. You just know it. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, and I, mm-hmm. think that, I think that that becomes clear, you know, the longer you're at, the longer mm-hmm. you're at an institution. You know, I, I just started here in August and just the amount of time mm-hmm. that I've, you know, really been able to interact and, you know, and interface. So most of the information I have is from, you know, li- little samples and, and, uh, is from little samples and a couple of, you know, and, and the written information. But, you know, I think the longer you're at an institution, the more likely you are to, to be able to hold that information. Yeah, just I just really want to emphasize, you are in such a great spot right now. Anybody who's new to their campus, 
you've got about a year, maybe 18 months, where you are incredibly valuable to that campus because you're still an outsider. You've got one foot in the culture and one foot out, and you can bring so much wisdom and so many good questions. Why do we do that? Why do we say that? When I hear that, I think about this. And you know, you couch it in a way that people can hear it and don't get defensive. I love new staff because they've got a shelf life for that particular perspective, and I want to hear it all. And, and I want, oh, you did it. Tell me how you did it someplace else because we make this stuff up. We can change it and do it in a different way. We can do it better. So you're very va you are more valuable now in a way that you will never capture again. So use it, use it, use it, use it for your campus and your students. I just really want to encourage you. Yeah, yeah, I know it's been it's been uh, been very uh, very refreshing being on a new campus, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been I, I think really invigorating. It's sparked a lot of good new ideas. So, um, so you have a, a deep history in NASPA, um, serving I as do. president previously, and. Um, I guess, why did you decide to, to spend a great deal of your life supporting this organization? <laughs> you know, I, my dad was a school superintendent, and he was very involved in the school superintendent's organization. And I observed that. I didn't know I was observing anything important at the time, but I saw when he had problems, he would call a couple other people, and they'd solve the problem over the phone and I was sitting there listening to that, they would get together and come up with scathingly brilliant ideas about how to solve an issue. And so I, that, I appreciate you asking this because that was always kind of a part of my life. And I went off and was a new professional and more senior colleagues said, hey, there's this organization and you should join it. You know? And I'm like, okay. So again, the power of a simple statement. So I got involved and I was a member, just a member, went to the conferences, read the stuff. And then again, the nudge, right? Somebody said to me, hey, you should come be a part of the regional conference. Okay, I can stuff packets. I can you know, introduce speakers, all the, the important but mundane stuff that goes into a regional conference. And it, it just one thing led to another. I found great fellowship. I found solutions to issues I was dealing with. I learned about things I wasn't aware of, and I brought that back to my campus. So I always encourage our own division staff Find two professional organizations, one that's pretty narrow to the work you do, so fraternity sorority advising, student leadership development, residence halls, and then find a broader one. For many people it would be NASPA. And that one gives you context and the ability to look outside of your narrow day-to-day -day focus, which is important too, because you're not going to stay in your position in the field that you're in for the rest of your life. So you want to see what else is out there, and you want to be presenting, you want to be meeting people. And um, you and I have talked about this. You know, I don't want to go meet people at a party. It feels very fake at a reception. But if I meet them at a workshop, putting something together for NASPA, we start to form a different relationship and a network that has served me well. I, I used to think being in professional organizations was for losers. I need to be honest about that, Miles, that, oh, you clearly don't have enough to do. You've got too much time on your hands. And you know, I, I, I realized that it was, in fact, a significant component to my success on the job back on campus because of how much I learned and what I brought uh, back from a conference or um, a conversation uh, with a colleague that I might have met, or recruiting people to my campus, people I had, had seen or met or sat in a workshop. So I think it's absolutely critical if you want to be exemplary at your job. You can do your job. You can get by. You can even be good at your job. But if you want to be exemplary, 
And uh, the nudge is go out there and get involved in any way, shape, or form. And um, it, it doesn't matter because one thing in NASPA leads to the next, leads to the next. And this is how you build a career. The people call you and say, hey, I saw that program you did at NASPA two years ago. We've got an opening. We'd like you to apply for it. That happens all the time. It gives you visibility. So thank you for asking. How did you get involved in NASPA? Um, I, so I got involved with the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was managing leadership programs at George Washington University, and a colleague, mm-hmm. uh, a colleague was on the listserv and noticed that they were accepting applications. And so mm-hmm. she forwarded that over to me, and I, and I applied. Um, I ended up uh, sort of going in NASPA because I started with a very uh, – broad focus in my career and didn't have one particular mm-hmm. uh, didn't have one particular functional area that really you know that fit as cleanly for me um, leadership doesn't really have like one association in the way that orientation does yeah. for instance and, and student organizations which is my day-to-day work now doesn't either so um, yeah. and so the the broader perspective is um, you know, is a is a place where uh, where I can still find information and really find a home that's going to be relevant um, and, mm-hmm. and applicable. Um, and there's not really a, a narrow choice for the areas that I've that yeah. I've ended up working in. So yeah, yeah. But see, the the simple act of a colleague sending that to you. What if they decided uh, I'll, I'll do that later or I won't do that? I mean, how, these are the important things that build our careers. Mm-hmm. I love that story. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. No, very, mm-hmm. very grateful for that person. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So I thought we might be able to finish by talking about the role of leadership work on college campuses, and your division mm-hmm. supports leadership in a variety of spaces. And mm-hmm. and I guess I wondered, you know, why do you think that focus is is worth is worth y'all's time and resources? Yeah, I I, I think it's critical now more than ever. And the more we can get every single student, not just the bright light to think of themselves as developing as a leader is critical because you're leading your life and that is not a trivial thing. So what is getting them to explore how am I a leader for my life is is something we can do on our campuses. Also, well, the nudge again, my mother, I was never I never joined organizations or I was a joiner but not a leader. Um, okay, let me explore being a leader of a student group or founding a movement and leading that, um, leading an initiative around changes in the curriculum. The encouragement we give and then not letting a student flounder but guiding them, guiding them to resources, helping them. It, it is important to learn how to run a meeting. I learned how to run a meeting when I was in college, and I use those skills today. How many meetings have you and I suffered through where somebody never taught that person how to run a meeting? These are all important components to being a good leader um, and a good follower. Sometimes we change hats. So I think the work that's done by people completely committed to this in higher education is more important than ever. You've got to help people understand that it is about leading a business, a nonprofit, a student group, a community group, your neighborhood, but it's also about leading yourself. And um, every student needs to be engaged in this. And you may not have the aha moment even while you're an undergrad, but I I've lived long enough to know they'll remember something four years after graduation that you brought out in them in a workshop or in a one-on-one meeting and uh, at a leadership summit. They'll remember it and they'll apply it. Uh, and, and I hear it all the time. Students will tell me that as, as alumni, something someone said, not just me but other people. So I think it's absolutely critical. And to, to not let students say, oh, I'm not a leader, I'm not a leader. That's when you really want to capture them and bring them into what, what you offer to students. Um, it's, it's so critical. And, and remember, let's all follow the advice we give to students. So. We need to be good leaders too. Uh, we're not just 
cultivating future leaders, but we need to follow our own advice and teachings to students. You must obviously feel it's critical or you wouldn't do it every day. Well, yeah, no, I think it's uh <laughs> I, I I think it's I think it's incredibly important work. I think that it um you know, I I believe you know, I believe in the Oxford Cambridge Collegiate Ideal, and I believe that mm-hmm. uh, that this is a, a time and space that is, uh, you know, people don't uh, have varied opinions on the idea of a safe space, and certainly mm-hmm. college is a more is a more more of a microscope than it once was, and, and more mm-hmm. accessible to the public than it once was. But you know, in the scheme of life and in stakes, uh, there are certainly exceptions to the rule. But you know, leading in things like student organizations, which is obviously a positional role, or you know, leading informally amongst your friends. You know, their uh, colleges are. You know, it's a it's a laboratory for learning in all sorts of spaces, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's a it's a safe space to learn uh, at you know as any that we'll find, um, and certainly helps yeah. people prepare for who they're going to be and helps them grow up and you know grow into the grow into the adults and the professionals that they're going to be in the world, and hopefully you know through the skills that we're able to apply and folks are able to learn here that they're able to be, you know, better citizens and, you know, and, and uh, you know, able to contribute to the world in different, uh, more impactful and hopefully kinder ways. Yes, yes, kind leadership. I want that to be the title of your book, Oh, How to Be Kind and Be a Leader. Well, I don't, I don't know that I'll, uh, I don't know that I would even be the, you know, be the right person to, to, <laughs> to write that, but... Uh, maybe you could edit it. How about that? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> we need so. that book. It's not out there. There's so then when somebody next asks me my favorite leadership book, I can tell me tell them it's yours. So I was there at the beginning. I was there. At the beginning. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I take credit for that. What's your favorite leadership book? Is it Kellerman or someone else? Oh no, I mine which I've which I've mentioned several times on here. Well, I have like a. I have a, a couple of different ones. It would be hard to pick. Um, my uh, my friend and a uh, person who's been featured here several times, Sean Dugan, uh, released a, a book mm-hmm. that I feel like gets talked about almost every episode, uh, a textbook mm-hmm. last year called Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives, which we mm-hmm. did a six-part series on. So I, I do really love that book, and I think it's really special. But I also Good. really love this Norton anthology by another person who I've who I've uh, tricked on to coming on the podcast, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Hammond, who's a professor at West Point. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, that that book is really interesting. It's an excerpt of um, other people who aren't even talking about leadership in direct ways, but things that she's yeah. circled back to. It's a, it's an amazing resource. And it feels um, more applicable all the time, actually. I was just talking the yeah. other night. My partner and I were watching uh, the Amazon show, The Wonderful Mrs. Maisel, um, which oh, is yeah. really... Uh, really interesting and really good, and and we're really enjoying it. But uh, Jane Jacobs showed up as leading a protest because I guess in the 50s they were trying to build a road through the middle of City Park, uh, mm-hmm. Central Park, in New York, and uh, and she was there protesting. She's sort of like the the uh, in, in many ways like an, a real intellectual titan in the world of city planning. And I wouldn't have known anything about Jane Jacobs if not for that book by Elizabeth Hammett. There's an excerpt of Jane Jacobs's in in that book. So one of those unsung heroes, right? That the, we don't hear enough about. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, I agree. You know, that's. It, uh, that book in particular, Elizabeth Hammett's book, gives people, and why I think that it's really valuable for folks who are doing student leadership work, is that it gives people, it's not just reading about, you know, it's not, not that this is not valuable, because it certainly is, and, and I think it was really transformative, but it's not a, another rehashing of, say, social change, which we, you know, is really, integ- you know, really integrated and is something that student leadership practitioners are reading and know a ton about and a lot of their facilitation and their models and their, you know, their whole programs are built around. And this is just a, you know, a completely mm-hmm. different look. It sort of pokes at well, your brain in a different way and I think produces a different, you know, a different response. So. That is a great way. That is what we're all about. There is yeah. no one way. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that is a... Uh, Thank you, that, Miles. 
That oh well, thank you. Yeah, and thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community, and uh, thanks to Dr. Shannon Ellis for joining us and generously giving of giving of your time. Uh, you can Way get more too much time. <laughs> oh no no! I'm looking at great. the clock. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no no! This is great. This is great. Um, so you can get more information about the about the SLPKC on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com backslash SA Lead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC, and you can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at, at Miles M Y L E S underscore Surrett S U R R E T T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Shannon, thanks again. Thank you, Miles.